We're going to read together from God's Word, um, from two, two passages, um, beginning at the end of Luke's Gospel. We would be aware that uh, Luke wrote a huge proportion of the New Testament uh, between his Gospel and his second volume, Acts, and there's a connection, uh, a close connection between the end of volume one and the beginning of volume two, and so we're going to read a short section from each of these. We'll begin in Luke 24 and at verse 45. If you're using the church Bible from the table at the back, that's on page 885. Luke 24, this is Jesus uh, speaking to His disciples after His resurrection. We break into the story at verse 45. Let's read and hear together God's Word. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up His hands, He blessed them. While He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. And then turn over with me past uh, John's gospel and just to the beginning of uh, the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 1, from verse 1, page 909 in the church Bible. Acts 1 from verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, you heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Amen. I'll be referring this morning to both of the passages that we read um, earlier on in Luke and in Acts, as well as various others. It will probably be most helpful to you, I think, to have uh, Luke 24 open uh, in front of you, just to have that uh, first account of the ascension as we think this morning about its significance. Imagine for a moment, imagine a nation in which the king dies, but before the rightful heir to the throne can be crowned, before the young prince can be crowned, um, a foreign power sees its opportunity and invades. The rightful ruler steps forward as a warrior king, to lead his armies into battle, and there follows outright war. 
Repeatedly, this king and his forces repel the hostile power. They suffer heavy losses. The king is wounded and recovered. Individual battles are won and lost. But in the end, through wise strategy and brave fighting, the war is won. The forces of this realm overwhelm their enemies and reclaim the sovereignty that is rightfully theirs. The army uh, marches back to the capital city where the people line the streets and there is a great victory procession. They make their way to the throne room where the doors are flung open for their rightful king. He stands there, and as he looks into the throne room, there is a great throne at the front and sitting on it, a crown of gold. And at that point, all the people lose interest and go home for tea. It would be a strange thing to happen, wouldn't it? And yet it's something that that has frequently happened in the church. God's people have shown great interest in the battle, in the sacrifice and ultimate victory of Jesus, the warrior king, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. It's all declared with great fanfare and joy, as it should be, and yet somehow the culmination of it all his enthronement in the seat of all power and glory is often overlooked. The, the ascension of Jesus really is the, let me put it this way, the crowning moment, literally the crowning moment in the gospel narrative. And yet it's strange how often it's been overlooked. We can it's just the thing that happened afterwards. We followed through the other moments as the creed sets them out. Jesus birth, life, death, resurrection, and now He ascended into heaven, where He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We believe in this Jesus, says the Creed. We believe in Him, we have declared this morning at the beginning of our service. We believe that the ascension happened, and we believe that the ascension matters. After His resurrection, Jesus was bodily removed from the earth and taken to heaven to be enthroned there. Without that, His salvation would have remained incomplete, and His present reign over the world would never have begun in the form in which He exercises it. Luke clearly considered it a crucial thing. He used it, as we've seen, as the culmination of His first gospel, not just the end, but the culmination of His first uh, uh, volume, rather, and and, uh, as the beginning of His second. It's easy to think, isn't it, that, that I'm sure we've all had this kind of daydream at one point. Wouldn't it have been great to be there? You know, we've, we've, we've all had that moment, I think, if we're followers of Jesus. You know, it would have been so much easier, wouldn't it, if we'd been there, if we'd seen Jesus, if we'd, if we'd met Him, heard Him speak, been able to, to see what He was like. Surely it would have been easier to believe in Him. All the evidence is against that. Most people who met Him didn't believe in Him, um, but we, we're tempted to think that. Um, we naturally value the physical presence of someone, don't we? We feel it more intensely. And, and when Jesus first told His disciples that He would be leaving them and returning to heaven, they were deeply sorrowful. I'm, I'm sure we can understand. You can imagine being one of them, and Jesus says, I'm going to go away. You, you would be sorrowful, wouldn't you? But when the time comes, and when His physical presence is taken from them in this striking, supernatural way, did you notice how they respond? Luke 24, 52, and they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. It's quite striking. 
Partly, of course, they'll be rejoicing in the gospel and the glorious truths of their salvation. They're accomplished by Christ, no doubt explained to them in, in more detail by Christ. Forty days between His resurrection and His ascension, we're told virtually nothing about that time, very, very little, but during that time, He would have sat with His disciples and explained a great deal, and I'm sure that a lot of the apostolic teaching in the New Testament would have had its roots in that time when Jesus would have been with His disciples then. That's, that's speculation, but I think that's a reasonable thing um, to, to consider. But the, this, the striking thing is that their joy is undiminished by the departure of the one they love more than anyone. In fact, it seems to be intensified by it. It's a strange paradox. Jesus has, has left them, and yet they're rejoicing. And, and to help us to, to consider the significance of the ascension, I want to unfold this morning three paradoxical truths about it, three reasons why the ascension of Jesus is something that we too can find hope in and find joy in. And my, my aim is that if we see these things clearly, we'll be enabled to worship Him with great joy and to bless God as we gladly affirm that we believe in the ascended Christ. Why is the ascension so important? Well, here's the first of these paradoxical truths. Removed from our sight, we see Him in His glory. Removed from our sight, we see Him in His glory. It is precisely as Jesus leaves this world that we come to comprehend more fully His true majesty and His honor and His dominion. What is the ascension? It is His glorification. It's His exaltation. That's the point. It's the point of His being taken up into the air, isn't it? As we were thinking with the children, it's not, not that heaven. You can fool a six-year-old with that. Heaven is not up there. That's not the point. Heaven is another dimension altogether. J.I. Packer has an interesting way of putting it. Packer defines heaven as the life of God. That's, that's what heaven is, he says. Heaven is the life of God. That's why God is always in heaven. Heaven is His life. And heaven comes to us as we are drawn into His life. We get, that's why we get a taste of it now, just little tastes um, in, in this world, but why ultimately when we go to God we are in heaven. That's, that's, what it, that's what it means, says Packer. But of course, it's another dimension of existence altogether. God is not confined within the boundaries of the universe that He created. He can't get in the Learjet or in, on the train or whatever it is and, and, and go. It doesn't matter where you go in, in, in space. Of course, you're not going to find God. It was the Russians that um, mocked that, wasn't it, when they first went up into space? Didn't see God? Well, what did you expect? Do you think he was floating about up, you know? God existed before anything was created. So he is out with his creation. Anything else would know, be like um, saying that John Grisham is nothing more than a, a character inside one of his own books. No, God does not exist within his creation, he, he, is, he is out with his creation, he creates. And all that is out with Him is, is created. So it's true that Jesus is physically taken from the world, but the point of what happens at the ascension is, is, not, is not to track, track the movement as if we're on route planner or on the sat-nav or something. That's, that's not the point at all. The point, is what hap the point is what it symbolizes. So Packer, again, I can return to him. Packer says, I mean, he puts it a little bit more um, 
Uh, he puts it a, bit, a little bit better than this. But, but he says at one point in one of his books, I quite like it, he says, well, he had to go somehow. You know, you've got to, you, otherwise you're just standing there. So you've got to either just vanish or you've got to go up, down, sideways. You've, you've got to go somehow. And so he says, the question is, what manner of departure will most clearly communicate to his followers that he is being exalted, that he is being glorified, that he is being enthroned over the universe? That's, that's the point. The ascension symbolizes exaltation. Jesus is being placed on high in a fuller and richer sense. It symbolizes that the Father is answering the prayer. Do you remember the prayer that Jesus offered in John 17? He said, just before his suffering, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. And to confirm that symbolism, you have this little detail that Luke adds in Acts 1 that I mentioned to the children. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That is, that is not an incidental weather report. It is, a, it is a clear symbolism. It's an indication Jesus is going to the presence of God. He is being exalted on high. And so, the departure of Jesus takes place, not in some kind of childish way, but in this way that demonstrates very clearly what it is that's happening. And that's why it's as He disappears from our sight that we see Him in His glory. So, it's what was always to happen. It's what God had planned. And if you look back, for example, Psalm 110, King David says, the Lord, speaking about God, the Lord said to my Lord, the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It always was God's plan that when, when the Savior's work was complete, He would be exalted. He would sit at the right hand of God and, and would be given the place of supreme honor in the universe because that's, that's what the right hand of God means. It's the place of supreme honor in the universe. And so, although the resurrection and the ascension are, are separate things, in another sense, you can't really separate them. They're, they're, if you like, they're two movements in one symphony. They're, they're just one thing swelling to a crescendo. And this exaltation to the presence of God is, is the crowning confirmation that the triumph of Jesus is complete. Now the Father takes Him home to reign in glory. He's victorious over every enemy. He's sovereign over everything. Do you remember how Paul puts it? Paul references this in Ephesians 1. He says, the Father raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's just stretching to, to, to expand our minds and tell us the, the, the sheer greatness of what is happening. He put all things under His feet, says Paul. He's far above anyone and anything and everyone. And, and, and everything. We'll, we'll come later on to the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, um, but when the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people. It's fascinating what Peter does. Peter sees this happen, this incredible phenomenon, this, this, this visible, once-for-all, unique event where the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of God's people and fills them, and Peter looks at this, and what does he say? What happens in his mind? He says, I see what's happening here. 
Jesus has ascended to the Father, and now He is pouring out the Holy Spirit on you. He is doing this from glory. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then He goes further. He uses the ascension to prove something else. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In all of this, the the right hand of God that's referred to in the creed is, is code, isn't it? It's code for the most exalted place in the universe, the place of supreme honor and glory. And so, by making this known, by displaying His enthronement, the ascension enables us to see the glory of Jesus more clearly than ever. And what that did for God's people in the past, and what it should do for us today, is this. It puts hope and puts heart into us. From from this point, the apostles know and they teach and they affirm incessantly that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand. If you go on to Bible Gateway or something like that and just, and just type in, in inverted commas, right hand, um, and look at the New Testament references to the right, it's, it's there over and over and over again, Jesus at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the Father, continually emphasized His place of authority. He is on the throne of the universe, and to see Him in His glory makes all the difference in the world. It means that over against everything that is ranged against God's people, the supreme King of glory is for us. He's reigning, and He is for us. It means that over all the forces of secularism and atheism and idolatry and whatever other trifling powers may arise from time to time, Christ reigns. He always has. He is doing. He always will. It means that His victory over sin and death and hell is complete. He has emerged eternally triumphant from the fight. We do not need to wonder ever, is this salvation great enough for us? Can this salvation cover even my sin? You don't know me. You don't know what I've done. Is is this really enough? We never need to wonder about this. Can, can, Can this Jesus really empower me? Can He really deal with this situation that I'm facing? We never need to worry about this. He's at the right hand of God. Of course He can. Whatever it is, of course He can. And His presence there is our guarantee of our presence there. In principle now, but fully one day. Listen to this. This is, a, a, this is a tremendous, I love this quote from Phil Riken. Humanity itself has now been elevated to the most exalted place of highest possible authority. Comprehend this staggering thought. Because of the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ, the dust of earth now sits on the throne of heaven. Isn't that a wonderful thing? The dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven. The throne of the universe is occupied by one of us. And because He is one of us, He's truly ours, and He represents us, and He's a sufficient Savior and a perfect Savior. He's there for us. 
What is our hope? Our hope is that the dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven and guarantees our eventual exaltation to the presence of God too. I was mentioning last week in connection with the resurrection, I mentioned um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, and his confidence in that in the face of death. Um, he, he, he got this too. Bonhoeffer once wrote a letter. He once wrote this in a letter. Today is Ascension Day. We don't, we don't follow too much of the kind of formal church calendar um, in, in that way, but, but some traditions do. He said, today is Ascension Day and a day of great joy for all who can believe that Christ rules the world and our lives. And that's a great thing to remember at any time. But when Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that, he was sitting in a Nazi prison. And, and, and there are not many darker places to be in the world than that. Today is a day of great joy for all who can believe that Christ rules the world and our lives. A great thing to be able to say under circumstances like that. Received, removed from our sight, we see Him in His glory. Here's the second paradox of the ascension. It signifies that His work for us complete, His work for us continues. Jesus goes to the Father because everything the Father has given Him to do on earth, He's done. Um, to turn again to that high priestly prayer in John 17, just before He's going to His death, it's interesting to see what the Son says to His Father. Um, just over and over again, different aspects. I, I glorified you. These are all in the past tense, the perfect tense. They're completed accomplishments. I, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. I have given them the words that you gave me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost. I have given them your word. I have sent them into the world. The glory that you gave me, I have given to them. I've done it all, he says, and then he hangs on the cross. And finally, he says, it's finished. It's done. I have now done everything. There is nothing left. It's all complete. And part of what the creed is saying, when it says that he ascended to the right hand of God and sits part of what it's saying is that His saving work is complete, because that's what you do at the end of a long, hard day. End of a long, hard day of work, you, you, you go home and you sit down because you're done. You don't need to be up and rushing around and doing this and that. The work is done, and you sit. It's part of the significance of it. Luke 24 records that as he leaves, Jesus lifts his hands and blesses his disciples. There's significance in that. Back in Numbers 9, um, Aaron was ordained as the first high priest of Israel, and he brought offerings to the Lord for the sins of the people. And we read this, then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. You see the, the pattern of what's happening here? Sin, sacrifice is offered for sin. 
Sin is atoned for. And then God's priest comes and pronounces God's blessing upon the people. That, that's, that's the Old Testament pattern. You deal with the sin, you, you get that out of the way and dealt with and gone forever, and now God's blessing can be announced on the people. There's a reason why we close our services often with, with, a, with a blessing, a benediction, because, because we've, we've been having dealings with God. We've confessed our sins before Him. We've been assured of His forgiveness. And then we, when we go out into the world, we go with the blessing of God. I don't tend to do, the, do this thing, but that's the reason why people traditionally have done it, is, is, is because it, the, the, those closing words are not just a nice little prayer. It would be nice if it was so. It's a blessing. God is blessing you. Not, I hope that God might bless you. Hear the blessing of God. Receive the blessing of God. That's why, you know, it's absolutely, it's, it's, it's delight, it's absolutely gorgeous. The, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you, give you peace. It's not a wish, it's a, it's a pronouncement. This is the result of atoning work. And so, what do we have here at the end of Christ's ministry? We have, he, he, he comes, He goes to the cross. He offers Himself as the supreme, ultimate sacrifice, and then His final act as He leaves, as He goes, is to bless His people. Their sin is dealt with, it's gone. The blessing of God is upon them. And then He goes because His work is complete. But in another sense, the greatest significance of Jesus' ascension is that His work for us continues. That's why we read um, not just the end of Luke's first volume, but the beginning of volume two. Um, there's significance in how He begins Acts 1 in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when He was taken up. That, put it that way for a reason, hasn't He? all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In other words, here's volume two. Here's what Jesus continues to do and to teach. After the day when He was taken up, there is an ongoing ministry of the ascended Christ. Calvin said of the doctrine of the ascension, uh, from this doctrine, faith derives manifold advantages. Manifold advantages. There is practical help that flows to us because Jesus has gone to the Father, and there continues His work on our behalf. Um, we don't have time to go into these in great detail, but just, let me just give you four aspects of the ongoing work of Christ for us today, and four reasons then that we can rejoice with the disciples that He has gone to the Father. Number one, Jesus continues His work as our advocate, pleading on our behalf the merits of His death, if anyone sins, 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father. Your, your perfect lawyer is right there pleading a perfect defense. We can know that we will always be forgiven because the ascended Jesus is in heaven making it so. And so, as you go about your life, and as you experience, as we all do from time to time, fiery darts of Satan which in different ways seek to undermine your faith and discourage you. Sometimes some of those darts will be 
Um, they take different forms, but sometimes the form of them will be, who are you to think that you're a Christian? If you do this, how can you possibly call yourself a Christian? These, these darts of accusation, the accuser. And we say, when Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, the ascended Christ, who made an end to all my sin. There he is, pleading his sacrifice with the Father. I need have no fear about my sin if I'm trusting in Christ. It's gone. It's not coming back. He's our advocate. Number two, Jesus continues his work as our high priest, as the one mediator between God and man. He intercedes for us. He makes sure that our prayers are heard and answered. As we receive the daily grace of forgiveness, we, we receive the daily grace of power to live for him. Because we have this high priest who has passed through the heavens, Hebrews 4, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, receive mercy, find grace to help in time of need. That's why we can be confident in our perseverance in faith, not because we are strong, but because at every moment, the ascended Jesus is obtaining for us and passing to us everything that we need to persevere. We can have that confidence. When you when you wake up tomorrow morning, Jesus knows what you need tomorrow, and He is there with it because He's ascended on high, and He's watching over His people, and He's continuing His work for us. So, He will give to you the grace that you need, the power that you need, the guidance that you need, everything. He's there to give it to you. Number three, Jesus continues His work as He prepares a place for us. That's what He said He was going to do, isn't it, when He went? John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to be with me. And so, number four, Jesus continues his work as he prepares to return when the time is right. The angel, as soon as he left, the angel said to the disciples there in Acts 1, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. One of the reasons we can rejoice in the ascension in not having the physical presence of Jesus with us is that He's told us so much about why He went, of what He is doing for us today. And the great secret and the great strength of the church is the mighty ongoing work of Christ moment by moment on our behalf. This is what He's doing right now. It should be, it should be huge encouragement to us. That was the strength of the church then. That's why a bunch of nobodies changed the world forever. Think what it, what it meant for the disciples to know in all that followed. I mean, they would come. It would not, it would not be long before, before Christ's people were being, were being put in arenas with lions. It would not be long before they were being doused with oil and set on fire for the entertainment of emperors at their garden parties would not be long before there would be mass persecution, large numbers of, of men and women martyred for naming the name of Christ. Think what it meant to them to know He reigns. He is ascended. He is seated at the right hand of God. Just one example, Stephen, Acts 7, hauled up before the Sanhedrin, and he preaches Christ crucified. It's great. They, they haul him up for trial, and he preaches. 
You know, just as well, I'm here. I'm going to say something, so let me just tell you about Jesus. And, and of course, they're incensed. They're absolutely incensed. And there he stands, all alone, the history and traditions and power of his people all against him. And what does he do? How does he stand fast? This is what it says in Acts 7. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And in that vision of the ascended Christ, Stephen became the first to die a martyr's death. And empowered by that vision, he not only died, he died like Christ, committing his spirit into the hands of God and praying for the forgiveness of those who killed him. Jesus' work for us is complete, and so he ascends, but ascended there. His work for us continues. One final central aspect of the ongoing work of Jesus that I haven't uh, mentioned yet, and if I can express it in one more paradox, it's this. Taken from our presence, He is with us forever. Taken from our presence, He is with us forever. That's the heart of the reason for the ascension of Jesus. He leaves His people in order that He might always be with them. As long as He's present in body, He will be present only to a few and to them only at certain times. And as long as He's present in His body, His church will remain dependent upon that physical presence. That's human nature. And that's why He said what He said in John 16 to disciples who were distraught by the prospect of His departure. He said, I tell you the truth, it's better. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and judgment, sin and righteousness and judgment. He will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify Me, because He will take all that is Mine and give it to you. Jesus promised, okay, I'm going. The, the Jesus that you see and know in this body will not be here, but I will send the Holy Spirit. I will send, and this is important, My Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. In that sense, I will be with you. He's not just saying someone will be with you. I will be with you. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of, of Christ. And, and, and He will come not to be a localized presence. You know, maybe if we, if we manage to, to do a pilgrimage to, to, to Jerusalem someday, we can meet the Holy Spirit. No. He will, he will indwell all of God's people in all places at all times. And so by leaving... Jesus becomes more present to us than we could ever have dreamed. The Spirit was given definitively that day at Pentecost when Peter realized this is the ascended Jesus pouring out this gift as he promised. In our own lives, the Spirit is given definitively on the day when God renews our hearts to believe in Him. Sometimes that's a conscious thing. Sometimes it's uh, not necessarily a conscious thing. There's no one experience of that subjectively. All of God's people have His Spirit indwelling them and empowering them. It's the only way you can be one of God's people. On the day when you come to faith, the Spirit takes up residence in you, and He's not moving out. 
But it's also true to say that, in another sense, the giving of the Spirit is a continuous thing, isn't it? An ongoing action of the ascended Christ. Paul is always telling us, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. However long you've been a Christian, well, to whatever degree you've been enabled to live for Him today and to resist sin and to love others and to witness to His grace, it's because today the ascended Christ poured out His Spirit into your life and helped you to do that. If tomorrow you are going to face the challenges that tomorrow brings, if you're going to resist the lure of unbelief, disobedience, and sin, it will be because tomorrow the ascended Christ pours out His Holy Spirit, gives you all that you need to live for Him. This is our only hope, but this is the promise. He is continually doing this. His work is ongoing. He is with us every day meeting our need, every day giving us all that we need for life and godliness. So, this doctrine that we are sometimes tempted to overlook becomes a key to our practical daily living. I will be with you always to the end of the age, he told them. And then he left. But then he came. This week, as you need to know that Christ is with you in all that you face, just consider this. Consider He has risen and ascended. Think of it consciously. When you wake tomorrow morning, when you wake on Tuesday morning, try it this week. Just try. Do something. Write it down. You know, stick it by your alarm clock or whatever you do in the morning. Just some kind of room. Just the risen and ascended Christ is ministering to me and for me today. He is empowering me today. He is with me. He is reigning over every square inch of His world, over everything that happens, and He is sending His Spirit to fill me. He is building His church. He is blessing His people. And in response, well, we should do what these disciples did. We should take heart. The, the enthronement of Christ changed their world. Who could stand against them? These 11 nobodies when the ascended Christ on the throne of the universe was with them. We should take heart and we should rejoice. We should rejoice in all that is ours through the finished work of Jesus and through the ongoing work of Jesus. We should remember that He has gone to glory as our forerunner and will take us there too. The Bible tells us in, in one sense it says you're already there. Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things on earth, for you have died and your life. You need, you, only faith can make this real, can't it? You have died. That's what we saw over these last few weeks. If you're in Christ, Remember that? The bad news, you've got to die. The good news, you already did. This is what Paul says. We need to receive this by faith. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Him, heaven is yours. And so we take heart, and we rejoice, and again, we do what the disciples did. We give our lives to the worship of God. That's how Luke ends his gospel. Luke gives us 24 chapters, and the, the, the great culmination of it all is that Christ ascends, and He reigns, He's enthroned in glory, and His people fall down and worship Him.
and they bless God for His goodness. Continually in the temple, they acknowledge His goodness, His glory, and His grace. And then, don't think continually in the temple means holy huddle, because then the Spirit came, and then they went out, didn't they? And they went out, and they began a new chapter altogether, and just an inconceivable, you could not believe this story if it hadn't happened. And the whole of history tells us that it happened. These men who went out, men and women who went out, and tra- were transformed by what they'd seen. They were energized by a power beyond anything they'd ever known, and they took to the world this gospel of a crucified, risen, and ascended, reigning Lord Jesus. We wouldn't be here if they hadn't, but they did. And their gospel story has become our story, and their gospel task, our task. But remember, the dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven, and that changes everything for our believing and our living and our serving. And so we rejoice in the ascension, and we serve in His power as we joyfully await His return. But more of that next time. Let's pray. God, our Father, open our eyes, we pray, to this great reality. It is not visible to us. These are truths to be received by faith. They are things that You have revealed to us through Your Word, things that the Lord Jesus spoke of with His disciples when He was here on earth. And every word that He ever spoke has been fulfilled, and every promise that He ever made has been kept. And so we pray that You would fill our hearts with trust, knowing that He continues to fulfill His promise to build His church, and that not for one moment has He ever wavered in His promise that He will be with His people always to the end of the age, and not for one moment will that ever happen. And so fill our hearts with fresh courage, we pray, and set us working for You, knowing that our King lives and reigns and resting in all that He has done and all that He is. Encourage us with these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.